Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. Jofa has supported and enabled the growth in women's Megillah readings worldwide. In the five years since the launch of Jofa's Megillat Esther project in 2012, women's Megillah readings worldwide rose from 50 to 200. We hope that you'll help us to create even more in 2018. Jofa UK provides a number of resources to help you to create or participate in a Megillah reading. They range from an app for laning practice to a step-by-step organiser's guide. Just visit ukjofa.org participate and follow the links to Project Esther. That's ukjofa.org participate for Project Esther. Remember to list your own Megillah reading with Jofa so that we can spread the word. Hi, this is Dina Brower. I am the founder of Jofa UK and I'm currently in my final year of Smicha studies at Yeshivat Maharat in New York. I want to introduce you to Masachet Megillah. I'm particularly fond of it, perhaps because it was the first tractate of Talmud I studied at Yeshivat Maharat with Rabbi Yaffa Epstein, and I have returned to it several times since. Megillah is the tenth of the twelve tractates within Seder Moed, the Order of Festivals. It takes its name from Megillat Esther, which is read on Purim. Purim and Hanukkah are two post-biblical festivals that are often compared. There is no Masachet Hanukkah or Masachet Purim within Seder Moed, but it is interesting to note that while the laws of Hanukkah are tucked into Masachet Shabbat in the Talmud, our tractate takes its name from the Megillah, which is read on Purim, and contains within it the laws of Torah reading as well. This indicates a certain hierarchy of Purim over Hanukkah. In fact, the Talmud states that Megillah reading was among three commandments ordained by the Anshei Knesset Agdola, the men of the Great Assembly, and accepted by the Heavenly Court. This may explain why two Geonic works, the Behag in the 9th century and Ravzad Yegaon in the 10th, count Megillah reading among the 613 mitzvot. Megillah is made up of four chapters. The first two deal with the laws of Megillah reading on Purim, and the last two deal with the laws of Torah reading, communal prayers, and the sanctity of the synagogue. In the Babylonian Talmud, chapter 3 and 4 are found in the reverse order. Let me take you through an overview of each chapter. Chapter 1. You may wonder when should the Megillah be read. The first Mishnah provides a rather confusing answer. Megillah nikret be'achadasar, be'shnemasar, be'shloshasar, be'arbaasar, be'chamishasar, lo pachot ve'lo yoter. The Megillah is read on the 11th of Adar, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th, not earlier than the 11th and not later than the 15th. Purim is on the 14th of Adar. It would be fair to assume that the Megillah should be read on that day. However, we learned that the law allows some flexibility to those living in smaller villages to anticipate the reading to the Monday or Thursday that immediately precedes the 14th of Adar. There are several practical reasons for this. First, Monday and Thursdays are assembly days for the villages. Since they are already gathered for the Torah reading, we tack on the Megillah reading. Second, the villagers may need to invite an expert reader from the larger town, and that person would be inconvenienced on the festival day itself. Finally, it seems that many of the village folk will be busy supplying the town folk with produce needed to celebrate the festival on the 14th of Adar, Purim Day.
So the small villages anticipate the Megillah reading, the large cities read on the 14th, and the walled cities read on the 15th to commemorate the extra day of fighting and celebration in the walled capital of Persia, Shushan. Originally, the Megillah was read only on Purim Day. In post-Mishnaic times, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi stipulated that the Megillah should be read at night and again the next morning. Masachet Sufrim, one of the so-called minor tractates, but not part of the formal Mishnah, describes a variety of Megillah reading customs. The first five chapters would be read at the end of the first Shabbat in the month of Adar, and the remaining chapters on the second Saturday night of Adar. Other communities would elaborate on the story of the Megillah, all this in addition to its scheduled reading on Purim Day. Having opened with the timing of Megillah reading, the chapter goes on to deal with the other rituals that can be shifted in date for the sake of convenience. The second chapter addresses the correct way for reading the Megillah. If one reads it in random order, they have not fulfilled their obligation. If one reads it in translation or in any other language, they have not fulfilled their obligation. But one who reads it in a foreign language to those who speak that language, and the one who speaks a foreign language who reads it in Hebrew, has fulfilled the obligation. One who reads it at intervals, or while dozing off, has fulfilled the obligation. One who reads it while copying it, explaining it, or fixing it, if she had intent to fulfill the mitzvah, she has fulfilled the obligation. One who reads a Megillah written with an herb, sikra, a red dye, commas, a type of resin, vitriol, or written on paper instead of parchment, or on diphtera, an unprocessed hide, he does not fulfill his obligation. A kosher Megillah must be handwritten in Hebrew script and language, on a scroll, and in ink. The third Mishnah in this chapter detours to consider what would be the case if you live in a city and therefore should read on the 14th of Adar, but are visiting a village, or vice versa. The answer is that it depends if you will be returning in time to read in your location of origin. If not, you read where you find yourself and at the time when the locals are reading. After this detour, the Mishnah returns to the question of reading the Megillah correctly. Does one have to read the entire Megillah to fulfill the mitzvah? We find three opinions. Rabbi Meir says, yes, you have to read the entire Megillah. Rabbi Yehuda says, it's sufficient to read from Ish Yehudi, the fifth verse in the second chapter, where Mordechai comes into the scene. And Rabbi Yossi says, from Acharei Hadvarim Ha'ele, the beginning of the third chapter, where Haman enters the picture. The Talmud cites a fourth opinion as well. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says one must start to read from Balayla Hahu on that night, which is the beginning of the sixth chapter. In the Talmudic discussion, Rabbi Yochanan traces these four divergent opinions to how each rabbi interprets a key verse at the conclusion of Megillat Esther. Vatichtov Esther Hamalka Bat Avichail Umordechai Hayudi et Kol Tokef. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abichail, and Mordechai the Jew, wrote about all the acts of power. Rabbi Meir understands it as King Ahasuerus' power, and thus he maintains one must read the whole Megillah from the beginning where the king's power is described. Rabbi Yehuda understands it as the power of Mordechai, and so he believes we read from Ish Yehudi, where Mordechai enters the scene. Rabbi Yossi maintains that he is referring to the power of Haman, so that is where we must begin. And finally, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who maintains we read from Vayehi Balailahu, and it happened on that night, understands that the expression of power is referring to the power of the miracle, 
which began on that night when Ahasuerus could not sleep, and therefore one must begin reading the Megillah from there. Next, the Mishnah states, Hakol Kshirin Likrotet HaMegillah. All are kosher to read the Megillah and thus enable others to fulfill their obligation. Chutz Micheresh Shoteve Katan, with three exceptions. Someone who is deaf, as one must himself be able to hear the words of the Megillah in order to fulfill the mitzvah. One who is cognitively impaired, as well as a minor, i.e. a child under bar bat mitzvah, who does not have the same level of obligation as an adult. It is noteworthy that women, often listed in the exempt category, are equally obligated in the mitzvah of Megillah. In fact, in the Talmud, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi declares, Nashim chayavot bemikra Megillah. Women are obligated in the reading of Megillah, and Rashi derives that they are therefore able to read it on behalf of others. The Mishnah completes this chapter by stating that the Megillah should not be read before sunrise to fulfill the requirement of daytime reading, and if it was read as early as daybreak, it is kosher. It then concludes with a list of all the daytime mitzvot that can be fulfilled all day long, such as reciting Hallel on a festival, sounding the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, or shaking lulav on Sukkot, and all the nighttime mitzvot that can be fulfilled throughout the night. The third chapter moves on from Purim to introduce laws of synagogue and special Torah readings. The first three Mishnayot discuss laws pertaining to the sanctity of a synagogue and other ritual objects. I will return to the first of these in more detail later. Questions such as, can one sell a synagogue or repurpose it, come up? What about a synagogue that has been destroyed? We learn that the sanctity acquired by a synagogue remains within it even when sold or destroyed. The Mishnah lists four uses for which a synagogue cannot be sold. A bathhouse, because people will be in that space in a state of undress. A tannery, because of the foul smell. For immersion, as in a ritual bath and as a public toilet or a laundry. And Rabbi Yehuda further adds that even after a synagogue has been destroyed, in that space we are not permitted to deliver eulogies, nor use it to unravel and repair ropes, nor may one set animal traps within it, or spread out produce upon its roof to dry. These are all occupations that require a lot of space, and the large space of a synagogue could be particularly suitable for these type of tasks. And finally, one may not take a shortcut through the synagogue space. The last three Mishnahs of the third chapter list the Torah readings for special occasions and rather appropriately begin the list with Rosh Chodesh Adar, the month in which Purim is observed, when that falls on Shabbat. And then we would read Parshat Kalim, a reminder to donate the half-shekel tax to the temple. You may remember that Shkalim has its own tractate. On the second Shabbat of the month, we read Parshat Zachor, a call to remember and not forget Amalek, our enemy. This would fall on the Shabbat preceding Purim. On the third Shabbat of the month, we read Parshat Para, which is about ritual purity, a reminder to begin to plan for Passover, when ritual purity is a prerequisite to taking part in the Paschal Lamb. On the fourth Shabbat, we read HaChodesh HaZelachem, detailing the laws of the Paschal Offering. On the fifth Shabbat, we finally return to the normal cycle. The Mishnah details the special Torah reading for each of the festivals, Pesach, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Hanukkah, Purim, and then goes on to other days on which Torah is read, Rosh Chodesh, the new month, fast days, Mondays, Thursdays, and Shabbat afternoons at Mincha. The fourth and final chapter begins with the words, HaKoreh et HaMegillah, one who reads the Megillah, 
and it seems to be circling back to the laws of McGill reading. This may be why the editions of the Talmud inserted this chapter as the third. But the start of the Mishnah is really deceptive. After explaining that the Megillah may be reading either sitting or standing, by one person or by two people at the same time, and that in places where it is customary to say a blessing after reading it, this is obligatory, but not where it is not, the rest of the chapter continues to detail laws to do with synagogue service, Torah reading, Haftarah, who is deemed fit to lead communal prayers and offer the priestly blessing, and who isn't. We learn that the number of aliyot of people called up to the Torah reflects the sanctity of the day on which it is read. On Mondays, Thursdays, and Shabbat afternoons, three people are called. On Rosh Chodesh and Cholamoed, the intermediary festival days, four are called. Never less and never more. And no haftarah is read. Five are called on Yom Tov, six on Yom Kippur, and seven on Shabbat. Never less, but we can add more. And an additional person is called to read the Haftarah, a text selected from the prophets. The Mishnah also specifies, The first and the last person to read from the Torah recites the blessings. This is different to our current practice, where each person called to the Torah recites an opening and a concluding blessing. The Talmud discusses why the practice has changed. The Mishnah also stipulates that anyone reading from the Torah should not read less than three verses, again indicating that Torah reading was perhaps more fluid than it is today. Another Mishnah lists all of the rituals that cannot be performed in the presence of less than ten. This includes the public recitation of Shema, the priestly blessing, Torah and Haftarah reading, as well as the mourner's blessing, Sherebrachot, the seven marriage blessings, or Zimun B'Shem, the invitation to recite grace after meal, invoking God's name. Our Masachet concludes with a list of biblical stories and passages that are censored. Some cannot be read in public at all, and some cannot be translated in public. As you can see, Megillah is rich and varied in content, but I'd like to conclude with my favorite Mishnah, the first Mishnah of chapter 3. It describes the hierarchy of sanctity inherent in items that belong to the community, from the public square to the synagogue, the ark, the Torah covers, the sacred books, ending with the holiest of all, the Torah scroll itself. Anytime one of these items are sold, their proceeds can only be used to purchase an item that is of higher level of sanctity. This Mishnah is in a chiastic structure and has a wonderful rhythm to it. As Mishnah was always an oral tradition, I imagine this made it easier to memorize it. It goes as follows. B'nei ha'ir shemachru rechovah shel ir, lokchim bedamav beit ha'kneset. Beit ha'kneset, lokchim teva. Teva, lokchim mitpachot. Mitpachot, lokchim svarim. Svarim, lokchim Torah. Aval im achru Torah, lo yikhu svarim. Svarim, lo yikhu mitpachot. Mitpachot lo yikhu teva. Teva lo yikhu beit ha'kneset. Beit ha'kneset lo yikhu et ha'rechov. V'chen b'motirehen. I find a compelling message in this Mishnah. It suggests that sacredness is acquired through sacred usage. Even a town's public square can become sacred space. Because on some occasions, people gather in it to offer prayers. This inference is applied to the synagogue, the official gathering space for prayer, and to the furniture and objects that come into contact with the Torah scroll. 
the imagery of Torah's holiness radiating out to the Ark and to the other spaces suggests that holiness isn't limited to the Torah itself, but that it can be expanded through our actions. We have the ability to turn ordinary objects and spaces into something sacred. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.